Good morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We are so happy you can join us for today's webinar on what advisors should know about ACA compliance for applicable large employers, an update. Now, before I introduce today's presenter, I want to let you know that we welcome all of your questions. Please enter them into the question box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer them at the conclusion of the presentation. Please keep in mind this also includes requests for slides. Also enter them through the question box and we will make sure we get that request completed. Now, for today's presenter. Today's presenter is Dave Fear, who is one of the foremost experts in alternative funding and the ACA. So Dave, how are you this morning? How are you, Dave? Okay, there I am. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for that introduction and good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a, uh, a nice warm day up here in Sacramento today. I think we're going to hit 103 and uh, uh, it's uh, good to be in a cool office and uh, appreciate all of you joining us today. Uh, this is a presentation uh, actually that I did about a year ago. I've updated the material quite a bit for uh, new things that have happened this year and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this with you so without uh, further ado let's uh, plow right ahead um, we're going to this uh, presentation this morning is is going to be in three parts uh, part one is we're going to talk a little bit about gathering information uh, on uh, ACA compliance and and for your clients Part two will be to discuss uh, an actual uh, ACA analysis that we provide for uh, clients. And then part three will be uh, the discussion of the, uh, the actual ACA analysis and recommendations report that we generate as well. Uh, one of the things that I, I wanna mention is that uh, at Schepler and Fear, and, and now we're part of Dickerson, We've taken the position that uh, uh, advisors, uh, agents, brokers, consultants, advisors um, need all the support they can get in complying with the ACA. This is not something that uh, has been easy for a lot of um, advisors to deal with, and it's it's very complicated. In fact, I I think it's the most complicated part of legislation that I've dealt with in my 42 years in the business. And so as a result of that, we, we developed a, a system for providing this service to uh, clients of, uh, of, of our key agent uh, partners. And so um, I'm, uh, you know, we've been doing this now for almost, uh, uh, almost six years uh, and, it's, and it's worked out really well. So here we go. Um, the, the first part that we wanna talk about today is gathering information. And, and we've developed um, a, a form uh, that uh, we ask uh, agents and advisors to uh, complete with their client as best as possible to uh, help us um, evaluate their situation. So we, we um, uh, want to know about uh, the employer and if they're offering any plans currently to employees, a little bit about that information. Um, it also begins the, the process of determining uh, classes of employees. And we'll discuss 
cl uh, employee classes in more detail a little bit later on. But it's important that we know the big picture with the employer, and so this information is is very vital. And then the most important thing that that we have to have is what's called an employee payroll census. Uh, at a very minimum, a payroll census, uh, which needs to be submitted in an Excel uh, spreadsheet or worksheet uh, format. Uh, at the very minimum, it gives us information on the name of each employee, their date of birth, their zip code, the hours worked each month, et cetera. And work hours, uh, by the way, have to be broken out month by month, and I'll show you why in a minute. And additionally, if we can get additional information such as uh, gender and date of hire, date of termination, uh, what type of pay they are, uh, salaried or, or hourly, uh, what their rate of pay is, what their federal withholding status is, et cetera, et cetera, and number of days worked, uh, that is extremely helpful. So here's um, here's an example of the form that, that we send out when, when we get called by a, a, an advisor who says, I, I, I need to do an analysis for my client on ACA compliance, we send them this form. It provides a, a, a quick overview of what we're going to do and, and what the form will accomplish. And then there's some basic information that we ask for, name of the business, location, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If they have, uh, if they're offering coverage now, um, then we need to know a little bit about that. And then um, we, we want to know if they have classes of employees already set up uh, currently, you know, salaried versus hourly and part-time, uh, seasonal, temporary union workers, et cetera. Um, with that completed form, we then need to get, as I said, the employee payroll census. And this is a template that we've prepared uh, in Excel. We can send you that Excel template, but basically if, if you, you know, understand how Excel works, at the very least, each each row on here will represent one employee, their name, their ID number, um, uh, et cetera. And in yellow are the um, columns that we have to have information for. So for example, um, the number of hours that they worked in the last, uh, uh, last year and month by month. So the month of January, how many hours did they work? And the next month, February, how many hours they worked, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is the way the IRS has prescribed you having to calculate an employer's size or, or ALE status, and it's extremely important. If we don't get this information in an Excel template like this, then we are not going to be able to do the analysis um, without charging you a lot of money. Um, we can take certain files like this that are in a PDF format and convert them into Excel, but it's really a lot easier to have it in an Excel format that's nice and clean and, and you know the data is not corrupted. Um, most uh, employers uh, work with payroll companies and they can go to that payroll company and say, hey, I need an employee payroll census for the last calendar year uh, for my ACA compliance. And most payroll companies, the ones that I would be working with uh, can provide that report now. That that wasn't true six, seven years ago, but it's very true now. So uh, that should not be a, a, a problem. Um, so there are there are some things to make a, a note of when you're gathering the information. Uh, depending on the workload and the time of the year, 
you can expect that it's going to take us five to 10 days, working days, turnaround time to provide a complete ACA analysis report and compliance proposal. Please don't send something in and say, I've got to have this for my client tomorrow because we're not going to be able to do that. It's generally a five to 10 day process. And depending on the time of the year, um, we can do it sooner than, than others. But uh, it's a process that's uh, very detailed. Um, we will produce a soft copy of the report or proposal, and that can be emailed uh, to the client and their broker uh, with an offer to review it via a webinar or a Zoom meeting. Uh, we've done the vast majority of our presentations via a webinar like we're doing now uh, or now using Zoom meeting as opposed to face-to-face -to -face, uh, in front of them. So we're, we're pretty good at this. And, uh, and yes, we do, um, we can do presentations in Spanish. Uh, we have that capability of English, Spanish, um, bilingual. The webinar itself uh, that we would present online will generally take about 45 to 60 minutes uh, with questions. And it can be done, as I said, in English or Spanish. So keep those in mind when you're gathering the information, help your client uh, have reasonable expectations about the time frame in doing this. Now, one thing I will tell you is that um, you'll, you'll notice, by the way, on this form that we say in red at the bottom of the form, there's a, there's a $995 fee to analyze the data and prepare a report. We waive that fee if the employer elects to purchase an insurance product through Shepler and Fear General Agency, a division of Dickerson Insurance Services and Alera Group Company. So that's that's up to uh, that's up to you and your client to decide that. Again, if if they say I, I want to put a, a compliant plan in and they place that plan uh, with you, the broker through us, the general agent, then we waive this fee. Um, most of the time, they do want to put a compliant plan in, and so we don't charge the fee. But just as you know, we're we're not really in the business of, of charging a lot of fees and making money off of this we're we're really trying to solve problems and 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 you know make this uh easy to comply so part two is uh what we want to talk about now is the actual aca analysis and keep in mind these three things each analysis that we do is customized for the individual employer uh it'll be based on the information that they gave us uh, we generally need to have this presented to the employer within two weeks of its release. So if we get it done, it takes us five days to do it, we send it back out and um, we, we wanna have a, a meeting, either face-to-face -face or Zoom or an online meeting within a couple of weeks of, of sending that out because there'll be a lot of questions about this information. It's very confusing or can be. And so we wanna be uh, make a verbal presentation as we review that. And typically we do this, um, uh, presentation or analysis report uh, about 90 days out from the date of compliance. So let me give you an example. If if it's if it's the month of January and we get a employee uh, payroll census for the entire uh, prior calendar year, uh, we'll do the analysis in January. And and if it appears that they need to be in compliance, they have until uh, March 31st of the, the following year to come into compliance. After that, they'll start paying penalties. So 
typically we say, look, you know, this this compliance uh, analysis needs to be done within about 90 days from the date you figure that you're going to go into compliance if you if you in fact need to. Um, we we get them at all times of the year, and and again we warn them about you know the date of compliance is set by the IRS, so there's not a lot we can do about that. So what does an analysis look like? Well, the first page of the analysis is an overview. Uh, it has their name and, and, and everything. The first section of the analysis is a calculation of what we call the gross uh, applicable large employer uh, a calculation number. Section two is the net number. We're going to talk more about those in a minute. Section three is a discussion about eligibility classes and uh, why that is important that they consider that. Section four is what we call an eligibility roadmap. Uh, which provides a visual report of when employees need to be offered coverage based on what sort of measurement or waiting period the employer decides to uh, to do. So this is all this is all uniquely crafted for that specific employer. It's not the same information for any uh, employer. It's it's customized for them. So the first thing that they'll see on this report is the calculation of their gross uh, ALE number. And um, this is this can be extremely confusing, and, and believe me, I didn't make this up. This is uh, direct from our friends at the IRS. There's about a 400-page um, regulation that they put out on this years ago, and they haven't changed it. So what you have to do is you calculate each month. So this looks back for the uh, calendar year 2018. This is a client that we had that came to us in, in early um, 19 and said, am I an ALE or not? So we said, okay, let's look at your payroll data for calendar year 18. And you see month by month, we we calculate these numbers. First, how many, what were the total number of employees uh, on the payroll in the month of January? So they had 26 uh, employees. These This would include full-time, uh, part-time, seasonal, or temporary workers, okay? The second thing it does is, what are the number of hours worked by all employees? So they had 26 employees on the payroll that month and they worked a total of 2,700 hours. Then we have to break out and say, how many of those 26 employees are actually full-time employees? And in this case, these are employees that worked 130 or more hours in that month. So they had nine. And then the total number of hours worked by those full-time employees, 1,448, which then leaves us with the total number of hours, 1,280.53 hours that were worked by all non-full-time employees. So part-time, seasonal, temporary workers. Um, you then take that number, 1,280, divide it by 120, which is uh, the IRS rule. And that gives us, in this case, 10.7 full-time equivalent counts. You add that 10.7 equivalent count to the nine full-time count, and for that particular month, they had 19.7 full-time and full-time equivalent employees. And you do that for each month of the year, and uh, then you take what the average is for the entire year. So in this case, this employer had an average count of 42.2 um, uh, full-time and full-time equivalent employees in 2018. 
the good news is is that he was not going to be considered um, a um, an applicable large employer and therefore was not subject to the law. Now we've seen a number of employers be you know right over 50 or right under 50 and if they have seasonal workers we say there are some special rules if you have seasonal employees that we can use here and what we do is we calculate what's called the net uh, ALE calculation and that's this uh, sorry that's the next slide here oh, there we go and so the net ALE calculation for this employer is 22.2 and you say wait a minute how did you go from 42 to 22 and it's real simple you're allowed to exclude in these calculations the hours and the counts for any seasonal workers who worked 120 days or less during the year for that employer so we we go through the census again and we calculate the number of days that they worked and if they worked 120 days or less that year we exclude those seasonal workers from the count and in doing so we end up with this net number and again i've seen i've seen some employers who uh in the ag space for example who had you know two or three hundred um you know their their, their gross count was two or three hundred but yet when you exclude out seasonal workers who maybe were only working uh 30 or or uh, 60 days for that employer when you exclude them from the count, it drops them to well below under 50. And so those employers are um, uh, do not have to comply with the mandate. Now you might say, well, you know, what if the, uh, the number of days they worked is not accurate? And frankly, that can be a problem. And so we tell them, when you give us this payroll census, um, it needs to not only show the number of hours that they worked month by month, but also the number of days they worked. And um, some payroll companies will provide a report that will give you the count of both the hours and the days. Others will not. And so we may have to go in and say, well, if you're, if you're not giving us an actual number of days worked count, then we can estimate that by taking the total number of hours that they worked, divide by eight, assuming an eight-hour workday, and um, you know, we can do that estimate. And if they're pretty, pretty good about that, if they're firm that you know, those are accurate numbers, then they can move ahead. Uh, but I have other employers who've said, look, I'm, I'm not sure about the number of days worked. I don't have good data there. So we say, well, then you might want to consider just going with the gross number instead of the net number for now. So that's uh, important. And I, I don't mean to get so far in the weeds, but these are the kind of things that employers ask us about and we're prepared to address. The next thing that they'll see in the report are what we call the eligibility classes. And there are two classes that we set up. Those employees who are active at work on the day that the census was generated. So on December 31st um, of that year, uh, how many employees were active at work? And then uh, the number of employees who are inactive. In other words, they were on the payroll earlier in the year, but as of December 31st, they were not on the payroll. So, well, why do I care? you care because if you rehire somebody later uh, and you rehire them within uh, a 13-week uh, break of service time period, they may be considered to be active even though they haven't met 
a new waiting period. So we, we help them through the census data determine what their classes are. And we divide them into seven classes now. Uh, class A are those who are eligible. In other words, uh, during the prior year, they averaged 130 hours a month for the 12-month measurement period, and they didn't have a break of service more than 13 weeks. Um, uh, class B are those that we consider to be likely eligible, meaning that they, they averaged 130 hours a month, but they hadn't worked the full 12-month measurement period or, uh, with or without a break of service. So it's likely that after they've been there for 12 months, they're likely to be eligible because they've been averaging 130 hours a month. Class C are likely ineligible, meaning that they, they, they haven't worked the full 12 months, but they've been averaging less than 130 hours a month. So it's likely that they're going to be ineligible when they meet their 12 month measurement period. Class D are those who are ineligible. They've, they've definitely been there on the payroll uh, for 12 months, but during that time, they were not averaging 130 hours a month. Therefore, um, they're not gonna have to be offered coverage. And then in the inactive group, we have three uh, groupings. Uh, class E are those that are possibly going to be eligible if you rehire them. So if you if they've had a break of service less than 13 weeks, but they were averaging 130 hours a month when they were active, and you rehire them, they're possibly going to be considered to be eligible. Uh, in other words, like uh, in that class B that we talked about. Class F is that they're probably ineligible if you rehire them because uh, after their break of service, um, prior to their break of service, they were averaging less than 130 hours a month. So if you rehire them, even though we'll have to continue on in a, in a measurement, uh, they're likely not to have to be um, uh, uh, offered coverage. And then item G is they're definitely ineligible if rehired. Why? Because simply they've had a break of service more than 13 weeks. And this is very true with a lot of seasonal um, employers who have employers of seasonal workers. So, you know, we might have a, a guy that's a farm labor contractor down in Stockton, California. And during the course of the year last year, he had over 5,000 people on his payroll throughout the year. But, but the vast majority of them uh, have, uh, are not eligible to be offered coverage because they had a break of service more than 13 weeks after the harvest season they they moved on so this is this is important to help the employer understand that you're not going to have to offer coverage to everybody just to those who are eligible then uh, we begin to we devise an eligibility roadmap and we'll show person by person um, what their roadmap looks like so here's connie on on line one and um uh, her, uh, the, the number of hours that Connie worked each month for the year, total hours, how many days she worked, and uh, she is active and uh, therefore eligible to be offered coverage and should be offered coverage. She's in class A, and in this particular employer's case, they only had six employees in that class that they have to offer coverage to now because they've met their 12-month waiting period and they've been averaging more than 130 uh, hours a month. Uh, class B, remember that's the ones that haven't worked the full 12 months. Uh, here we show, whoops, sorry about that. Uh, here we show them 
and uh, what uh, approximately what month they're going to become eligible. So, well, you know, this one that was hired in February uh, and, and has worked uh, just 11 months of the year through the end of December, they'll be eligible uh, the following February because it appears that they're averaging 160 hours a month. So once they've met their 12 months of work, they'll be eligible to be offered coverage. So we put them in the, they're on the runway, so to speak, and they've got 29 employees that they'll, they're likely to have to offer coverage to uh, in the future. Uh, class, um, come on, uh, whoops, keep skipping ahead, I apologize for that. Class C are the ones that, again, they haven't been there a full 12 months, but while they have been on the payroll, uh, they were not averaging over 130 hours a month. And so uh, it's likely that they're not going to have to be offered coverage uh, once they've met their 12 months. Uh, we didn't have any Class D people in this group. Um, we have some Class Cs. We have 14 people that have been inactive for uh, a period of less than 13 weeks. If we rehire them, it's likely that uh, they don't have to meet a new 12-month waiting period if we rehire them within uh, 13 weeks but they're likely to be offered coverage after they've, uh, they've accumulated a full 11, uh, 12 months of, of work time. And then we do the same thing with class F and finally class, um, class G. So for this employer who had 142 people who were on their payroll last year, the, the reality is, is that they've only got six people that they have to offer coverage to right now because they've been They've been there for 12 months. They've been averaging 130 hours a month. They've got another uh, dozen or so people that they may have to offer coverage to in the months ahead. But but obviously the vast majority of employees they don't have to offer coverage to. And that's you, you know when you're talking about ag space or, or retail uh, uh, operations and stuff that have seasonal uh, workers, this is a very very big deal. So uh, please make these notes about this AC analysis that we do. First off, the, the, as I said before, the calculation of the gross and net numbers are very important if you've got seasonal or what we call variable hour workers. Um, the, the old term of part-time, seasonal, or temporary workers has now referred to by the IRS as variable hour workers. So you're either a full-time employee or you're a variable hour worker. And thus, knowing the number of days these workers um, worked during the year is very important so that we can determine the, the right gross and net number. Uh, as I said before, if the number of work days is not available from the payroll vendor, then we'll calculate the estimated number of work days by dividing the total hours um, by eight. But again, that's just that's an estimate, and you know, if it's really close to that 50 number. Um, you know, you need to be very conservative. And then finally, we provide the eligibility roadmap, and it assumes in this case that the employer is going to use the 12-month look-back or measurement period for variable hour uh, employees. They don't have to, but we found that most employers that have variable hour workers like that want to wait until the full uh, 12 months before they have to offer them worker uh, coverage because you know you got people coming and going uh, each week and they they'd like to say look these these people are going to uh, you know uh, be here and if they're permanent then then we'll we'll do that within the 
at the end of 12 months. And frankly, this rule that the IRS imposed was kind of made for the Walmart marts of the world who, when the law first came out, they said, well, you know, we're just going to schedule all of our workers to work uh, 29 hours a week, and therefore they're not going to be considered full time, and therefore we don't have to offer them coverage. And then the government came back and said, okay, well, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, you can do it. But at, at, at one point, at least once a year, you're going to have to do a 12-month uh, look back measure how many hours they worked, and if they averaged more than 130 hours a month, you must offer them coverage um, within, uh, within 30 days of finding that out, of that measurement period ending. So um, now that we know what that, that's the rule and how it works, it, it, you know, it, it works out well. Most good payroll companies can, can put that system in place for you when you set it up with them. They'll say, okay, this class of employees are going to be subject to a 12-month measurement period, and we'll automatically tell the employer each week or each month which employees have met their measurement period and, and qualified for coverage, and you need to offer these employees coverage. Instead of a, of a list of 2,000 workers on the payroll, you know, maybe there'll only be 10 or 15 workers that have to be offered coverage that particular month because they've completed their 12-month uh, measurement period. So that's uh, again, I know this is complicated and I'm, and I'm moving it fast, but, you know, there's hope for, for employers in here about how to comply without bankrupting your company. So uh, part three is, is, is what I call the ACA analysis and recommendations report. Uh, and this, this is what we're going to take a, a fair amount of time on today as quickly as I can. Um, it summarizes the ACA analysis report that I just presented to you. It summarizes the compliance issues that the employer has to deal with. It provides a side-by-side -side comparison of what compliance options they have, and it begins the process to implement a compliance strategy in a, in a, in a way to do this. I, you know, I remember when this all first came out, I subscribed to this very expensive uh, online program to do AC analysis work. And, and I, you know, we paid several thousand dollars to subscribe to this thing. It was super complicated. It was, it required you to gather, I mean, a ton of information and it was, and it was good, no question about it, but it was, I mean, it was just daunting. And the average uh, agent out there, you know, just was pulling their hair out saying, there's no way I could do this. And the average employer is saying, holy cow, you know, this is just terrible. And so what I'm proud to say is that, you know, over the years after that, uh, we've, I think, come, we've simplified a lot of this. I'm not saying it's perfect, but we've simplified it. We've, we've focused on the areas that you really have to know about and all of the other stuff that kind of comes along with it, we've, we've really minimized. So, so here goes, this is what a, a sample uh, report will uh, a recommendation uh, report will look like. Uh, in this case, this was a, a company uh, located in in Folsom. Uh, we always say up front, this is not legal advice. We're not a, a law firm. We don't dispense legal counsel. Uh, they can go to any attorney they want, spend five or six hundred bucks an hour for legal advice, uh, but but we don't we don't charge for that. I mean, we're we're not providing legal advice um, in that sense. We're not a CPA firm. We don't provide tax law advice. Um, for legal or tax advice, we recommend that they contact their attorney 
or certified public accountant. I cannot tell you how many attorneys and CPAs have come back to us and said, okay, they need to have an analysis done. Can you do that? And we say, we're, we're happy to do it. But, uh, you know, we're acting as an employee benefit advisor and only in that capacity. So, um, you, you know, and, and you all know what that means. We're not, we're not attorneys and CPAs, we're advisors. So uh, we summarize a little bit about the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. It's still the law of the land, it hasn't been repealed. The Trump administration did ex uh, issue an executive order that reduced the individual mandate penalties to zero effective in 2018, uh, but they didn't do away with the individual mandate. They just made the penalties uh, zero dollars. Uh, the IRS continues to require that the employers file reports and make payments of any penalties for non-compliance. And they began to send out these notices uh, in November of 2017. And so far, last count, a quarter of a million employers in this country have received these notices from the IRS and are paying fines and are being required to um, comply with the law. Uh, as you all know, here in the People's Republic of California, uh, we enacted legislation that re-implemented the individual mandate penalties and affirms what that employer mandate penalty still is. Even though the California doesn't um, uh, uh, you know, penalize the employers, it, uh, it now penalizes employees or individuals who don't get coverage. And that went back into effect, uh, I believe, in uh, 19 or, or, or this year. So uh, we have the mandate, individual mandate penalty back in California. And I think about 12 other states like New York and New Jersey have done that as well. Um, we then um, discuss with the employer, again, what the individual mandate penalties are. And you say, well, why do they care? It, we, they care because if they're going to offer coverage to their people so that their people are being offered uh, coverage and therefore um, can avoid the individual mandate uh, by, by getting coverage through the employer, they need to be aware of the fact that if they don't sign up for coverage, then here are the mandate penalties. And again, as I said before, um, California's enacted legislation that has reinstituted these penalties. And, and back in 2018, the penalty was the higher of 2.5% of family income or $695 per adult and $347.50 per child with an overall cap of $2,085. And uh, the penalty it was due when the individual files their tax return. So that was that was happening in, in you know, 15, 16, 17 and um, and 18. It went away in 19 and now it's back in, in 20 uh, through California. So we remind them of what the individual mandate penalties are. And then we have a discussion with the employer so that we're clear about this, about what the uh, employer mandate requirements are. Uh, first off, the em employer mandate requirements, just so we're clear on this, went into effect for uh, on 1-1 of 2015, for employers that have had 100 or more full-time or full-time equivalent employees. Remember, it was originally going to start back on 1-1 of 14. Uh, the federal government pushed it back for one year for large employers with more than 100, and they pushed it back two years for employers with 50 to 99. Uh, so now, since it's obviously 2020, 
um, this applies to employers with 50 or more full-time, full-time equivalent. We already talked about the full-time equivalent numbers already, and there are two requirements in the mandate. First, that the employer has to offer coverage that meets a minimum value standard. Those are the exact words out of the law, and that minimum value standard has a 60% actuarial value and covers the 10 essential health benefits in the law. That's the first requirement. The second requirement is the coverage that is offered has to be considered affordable. And as I remind employers, affordability has nothing to do with the price of the insurance. It has to do with how much money the employer charges the employee for coverage. And so the amount paid by the employee for coverage for themselves only cannot be more than 9.78% of their salary or wages. And I'm gonna show you a chart in a minute that, that puts this all in dollars and cents. But those are the two requirements. You have to offer minimum value standard coverage and the coverage has to be considered affordable. If, if you offer one but not the other, you're out of compliance. You have to meet both of those rules in order to avoid these penalties. Uh, the coverage has to be offered to all full-time employees who work an average of 30 hours a week or 130 hours a month. That hasn't changed. So therefore, it does exclude part-time, seasonal, and temporary workers. Um, and those, as I said before, are considered variable hour employees and could be handled differently. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, they do not have to uh, offer spousal coverage, but they do have to offer child coverage. But that coverage for children can be 100% paid for by the employee, not by the employer. So the employer only has to pay for the coverage for the employee, uh, not for their dependents. Uh, and that's, uh, that's obviously good from their perspective. What are the employer mandate penalties? I know most of you have seen these and heard about it, but for 2020, the mandate penalties um, have been, uh, have been uh, adjusted upwards. And I missed a, uh, sorry, I missed a uh, decimal point here. For 2020, the A penalty, uh, which is a failure to offer minimum uh, essential coverage is $2,570 per employee per year. That comes out to $214.17 a month times the number of eligible employees who were not offered coverage when they became eligible, less the first 30 employees. And I'll show you an example of that in a minute. The B penalty, which is... Uh, um, charged if the employee who's not being offered minimum uh, essential or minimum value coverage goes out to the exchange and gets a subsidized uh, plan, the B penalty has gone up to $3,860 a, a year, which is $321.67 a month, times the number of employees who enrolled for subsidized coverage through either a state or federal exchange, such as Covered California. Uh, understand this, these penalties are assessed in the year following non-compliance. So these 2020 penalties are not assessed until 2021. That's when they're due. Um, the penalties are due uh, when the employer files their reports. And these are the infamous forms 1094C and 1095C. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. The penalties will be assessed for each month of non-compliance. So for example, if an employer 
uh, only offered coverage for six months of the year, they, they failed to have a plan in place on the first of the year, they're going to pay those uh, the monthly penalties based on uh, the number of months that they were out of compliance. So it's not the full amount, it's prorated to that much per month. Uh, these penalty amounts do increase uh, each year. Originally there were 2,000 and 3,000 back in 2014 and now as you can see they're, they're up uh, substantially. Uh, the penalties are still enforced, they've not been overturned by the Trump administration, a lot of people thought they would, but for whatever reason the Trump administration has said no, the penalties still apply. So um, you have the IRS sending out the, the infamous letter 226J and other letters of inquiry to thousands of employers to say, uh, we think you owe us money because you're not in compliance, so you need to prove to us that you're in compliance. And believe me, when those letters start going out in November of 2017, our phones were ringing off the hook from clients who saying, I got this letter from the IRS, they want a, a, a zillion dollars from me, and I thought we were in compliance. And we just say, you know, calm down, you are in compliance and, and, and there's a way to, to uh, deal with the IRS on this. And we've, we've assisted in, in, uh, with clients in uh, seeing that that's uh, taken care of. Again, we're not attorneys or CPAs, so many times we work with their attorneys or CPAs to respond formally to the IRS. Um, then in the report, we remind them of what their status is as an applicable large employer. So for this particular employer, for the time period of 1-1 of 18 to 12-31 of 18, they had 1,027 people on the payroll on and off during the year. But their average a gross monthly count of full-time, full-time equivalent employees was 210, and their net number was 99. So any way you cut it, they had more than 50, and they were uh, thus, they would be considered an applicable large employer in the year 2019, which means they had to come into compliance in 2019. If they weren't in compliance prior to that, which is what the case on this case was, they had to be in compliance no later than March 31st of 2019 to avoid the penalties for that year. So uh, based on the nature of their business and their ALE status, they needed to consider a compliance strategy now. So then we uh, say, okay, so here are your compliance options. And this is now based on the 2020 penalties and rules. Option one was don't comply with the law, okay? So their A penalty would, would, would potential is $2,570 times 132 minus the first 30, which means 102 people times this 2570 meant that they could pay in fines and penalties $262,140. At the very least, that's what they were going to pay if they didn't comply. However, if, if they didn't offer coverage uh, and, and all of their employees went out and signed up for coverage through Covered California, and that wasn't true in the first couple of years because you had a lot of employees that didn't understand and know how Covered California worked. Well, now they do. I mean, you got all this advertising on buses and signs and stuff, Covered California, come in, enroll, blah, blah, blah. So if all 132 employees were to go to Covered California, sign up for coverage, the employer would be liable for 3,860 times 132 people, which is 509,520. So if they didn't comply at all, 
at the very least, they're going to pay 262 grand, and and it's likely that they could pay upwards of 509 thousand uh, dollars for all of the people who went into the uh, uh, covered California. So that's one option. So then we said, Mr. Employer, that the option two is that you comply and you offer what's called minimum essential coverage or a MEC plan. And uh, many of you already know what a MEC plan is. I won't get into a lot of that today, but by offering a MEC plan, they automatically avoid the A penalty. So that goes away. Unfortunately, a MEC plan does not qualify as minimum value coverage. And therefore, uh, with MEC coverage, they could still go to Covered California and apply for a plan there that provides minimum value coverage. And so it still leaves the employer open to the B penalty. And early on, we had a lot of employers who did that. Uh, they didn't believe that their employees would all run off to Covered California. Uh, some of their employees were not here legally, so they didn't believe that you know there'd be an issue. But as time went on, we began to see more and more employees sign up for Covered California. It was safe. So just by offering a MEC plan, you're not going to avoid the B penalty. So we said, well, what is the cost of a MEC plan if I were to go that route? In this case, the employer, uh, the cost of a MEC plan, a basic MEC plan with some, some minor uh, improvements was $74.11 times 132 employees times 12 months, which is $117,390. $117, uh, this happened to be a level-funded or self-funded program through Starmark, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, and it was a tax-deductible plan. They get money back. Uh, part of this $74 is refunded back to the employer if their claims are uh, low, and most of the time they are. So uh, that was one option. Option three was to comply by offering both uh, MEC and minimum value coverage, which then would avoid both the A and the B penalty. So this employer basically said, okay, so I could offer everybody MEC coverage. It would cost me $74.11 or $117,000 a year, but I would also give them the opportunity to upgrade to minimum value coverage, which costs a lot more. So under the law, he would have to pay, the employer would have to pay at least 50% of that $274.93 uh, monthly premium for minimum value coverage, which we'll talk about in a minute. And if all uh, 132 people enrolled for coverage, the employer would be spending $217,745, which uh, he, he wouldn't have both. He would say, I'm gonna offer this, they can upgrade to this, and if everybody upgraded, I'd end up spending that, which is obviously a lot less expensive than paying the 509,000 uh, uh, fine over here. So assuming that everybody upgraded. Again, this was also a level funded program uh, in which Starmark would offer both a, a, a MEC plan and an upgrade to minimum value coverage. Uh, they required that a minimum of five people had to enroll for minimum value coverage. So um, we saw a lot of those types of plans be uh, established because it avoided both the A and the B penalty. And then finally, option four is, you know, just offer minimum value coverage. Don't offer um, uh, the, the, uh, the MEC plan. Um, and we know what that coverage costs, 274.93, 50% of that is, you know, again, 217,000. The problem with, with offering just minimum value coverage 
and requiring the employee to pay, say, half of it if the employer's not paying the full cost, is that you had a lot of employees would say, no, I, I, I don't want to participate. I don't want to pay for it. Um, so even though they're being offered coverage, uh, they don't want to enroll on it because they don't want to pay anything out of their pocket. We saw this a lot with, with farm workers. Um, and, and so you could not get the participation. And in other words, the typical MEC plan or minimum value plan has like a 75% participation requirement. Uh, some are, are less than others, depending on the carrier. So by putting in a minimum uh, essential plan as an upgrade, the uh, participation was uh, effectively waived here and, and you could do it. But this, this could be tricky depending on whether or not the carrier would allow um, uh, some, some adverse enrollment because you're not getting the full enrollment. So that's what we would show an employer in terms of what their options are and, and how this would work. Okay, so we then say, consider this kind of compliance strategy. This is, this is the most important slide on here, in my opinion. Mr. Employer, first off, consider classifying your employees based on their employment status. So you'd have class one employees who are full-time employees. These are employees who are salaried or hourly and they're scheduled to work 30 hours a week or 30, uh, 130 hours a month on a permanent year-round basis. These are people that you'd say, yeah, that's a full-time employee, okay? And then establish class two as a variable hour employees. And these are all of the workers who are not full-time, such as part-time, seasonal, or temporary workers. So you have two distinct classes, full-time and variable hour, okay? Then establish waiting periods by class. So for class one full-time employees, you have to offer benefits the first of the month following either a zero, one, or two-month waiting period so that overall the waiting period can't be longer than 90 days from date of hire, okay? That's pretty simple. Most employers are already doing that. Again, first of the month following zero, one, or two-month waiting period, no more than 90 days. But class two, you can have a different waiting period. For variable hour employees, we suggested that they offer benefits after that look back period. And the look back period, it can be as short as three months, but no longer than 12 months. And, and, and during the look back period, as I said before, if they are averaging 130 hours uh, a month uh, and they don't have more than a 13 week break of service during the year, then you, can, you, you offer them coverage after they've met that uh, look back or, or measurement period of up to 12 months. So um, we did this a lot with farm workers. We did this a lot with um, uh, restaurant, um, uh, you know, a lot of part-time people, stuff like that. Um, then the third thing is offer compliant coverage. Offer uh, at least minimum essential coverage to avoid the A penalty and offer uh, minimum value coverage to avoid both the A and the B penalty and either offer one or the other or offer both with the ability to upgrade. So offer compliant coverage. Um, a lot of employers made the mistake of having a broker tell them, yeah, you can put minimum essential coverage in here and you don't have to worry about a thing. And then later come November of 2017, the IRS started sending out letters to these employers saying, hey, uh, the following employees appear to work for you. Here's their social security numbers and their names. And they have gone to the uh, exchange and received a premium subsidy. And, and uh, it doesn't appear that they 
were offered coverage by you, uh, minimum value coverage by you, and therefore you're subject to the, the B penalty. And we had a lot of employers who were very upset about this. Um, all of our employers that we worked with, we made sure that they were offering both minimum essential and minimum value coverage. And frankly, these employees still went, you know, they refused coverage on the employer's plan. They went down to the exchange, they signed up for coverage. They told the, the exchange said, are you offered affordable coverage by your employer? And they say, no, I'm not. So they took their word for it and, uh, and uh, they signed them up for coverage. And then two years later, the IRS says, uh, well, sorry, but you, you were offered coverage and, and we want our money back. And this was, uh, you probably heard some of these stories. So you had employees really upset because they didn't feel like they were being offered affordable coverage because they were having to pay something out of their pocket. And guess what? They were being offered affordable coverage. Uh, but remember, their, their employees um, can be allowed to uh, require a payment on their part and they didn't want to pay anything so they therefore they thought it was uh, not affordable so and then when you offer affordable coverage make sure that the employee cost is not more than seven nine point seven eight percent of their wages uh, for this year um, we recommend that look back method as we already talked about the measurement period or look back period and, and this is some details about how that works and, and how it and, and what it does. We've consulted with many payroll companies who employers go to their payroll vendor and they say, I want to put in this look back method. And, and we work with the employer and their payroll company to see that this gets established correctly. And most of them now know what what this what they're doing and how this works. But in the beginning, they didn't. Um, we remember we talked about the eligibility status report. So for this particular employer who had 1,027 people on the payroll in calendar year 2018, or, or excuse me, in uh, 17, uh, they only had 61 people who were class A who were eligible to be offered coverage now. They had another 71 people that would probably be eligible to be offered coverage in the future when they met their 12 months. But the vast majority of their other employees were not eligible to be offered coverage because they weren't working enough hours or they had a break of service more than 13 weeks. So think about it this way. You know, I'm sitting down with the employer. He said, well, I had a thousand people on payroll last year. And I say, well, the good news is you only have to offer coverage to 61 of them now and maybe another 71 in the next um, in the next few months. And they go, oh, well, that's that's not so bad. And, and this is this provides a huge relief by doing it this way. And but you've got to have this data from the employer to be able to to machinate those numbers. Regarding employee classes, as I mentioned before, we recommend that the employee employer consider establishing classes. These classes cannot be discriminatory. They have to be what they call logical. You know, like uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, full-time, part-time, or um, seasonal, or um, uh, hourly versus salaried, or union versus non-union. Uh, things that, that don't require a lot of um, uh, uh, subjectivity on the part of the employer, it's, it's, it's pretty well black and white. You can vary the employer contribution by class. So I've got some employers that say class A employees, we pay 100% of their costs. Class B employees, we only pay 50%. 
And as long as you're not discriminating within the class, you can do that. You can vary the waiting periods by class. There are some restrictions on this by some carriers. Certain carriers will not allow you to have different waiting periods by classes. This is very true more in the small group arena than it is the large group arena, but, but you can vary, uh, have variable waiting periods by class. All classes, and this is important, have to be offered the same medical plan choices. You cannot offer a platinum and gold plan to one class and uh, just bronze benefits to another class. You have, if, if you're going to offer, you know, platinum, gold, silver, bronze, uh, they have to be offered to everybody. Now you can you can vary your contributions for that, but you have to offer the same medical plan choices to all classes. And then again, as I said before, classes have to comply with the ERISA non-discrimination rules, and those rules can change with advance notice from the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, this is the affordable coverage table, and this is the table that everybody wants. Okay, so here you go. This is what in 2020. This is the affordable coverage table, uh, and it's based on hourly wage. So let's just, I think minimum wage is now 12 bucks an hour. Um, so if I've got an employee who's, I'm paying 12 bucks an hour, the most that I can take out of their check um, for uh, their paycheck for coverage and meet this 9.78% rule are these amounts. I can make an hourly deduction of a buck 17, I can, if, they're, if they work 30 hours a week, I can make a weekly deduction of $35.21. If they're paid bi-weekly, 26 pay periods a year, $70.42. Uh, Semi-monthly, uh, 24 pay periods a year, $76.28. And monthly, $152.57. You say, well, that's it. Yep, that's it. That's what affordability is considered. The problem is this. If you're in the small group market, you know, under 100 lives in California, what are your rates based on? Your rates are based on their age. Now, in the large group market, generally you get composite rates. So you could have an employer who uses this table and he says, I'm going to deduct $152.57 a month out of your paycheck for your cost of coverage. Well, that's all fine and good. If that happens to be a really old employee, say in their in over age 50, and their premium rate is, you know, seven or eight hundred dollars a month, um, they're going to be happy because the maximum they're going to pay out of their pocket is 152 bucks because they're making 12 bucks an hour and they're an older employee. But if that employee is a 21 year old and their premium is only 200 dollars a month, uh, you know, the employer is going to say. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm paying 152.57. The difference is only 50 or so bucks for you. So, um, does the employer have a, a a little bit of a conflict here in that they they wish uh, none of the older employees would enroll for coverage because it costs more, and they're limited as to how much they can take out of their check. And that's one of the conundrums of this law is that affordability is not based on the price of the premium. It's based on how much you take out of the employee's paycheck based on this percentage of their income. This can get really complicated for some employers, but it's it's the law of the land and that's how it works. So uh, this is a, just a brief discussion of the difference between minimum essential and minimum value coverage. 
Most of you already know this. Minimum essential coverage is basically that plan that basically just pays for preventive care services only, whereas minimum value coverage pays for, uh, you know, when you get sick as well. It pays for preventive care, but it also pays and it covers the essential benefits. You see a lot of bronze plans with very high deductibles that are considered minimum value coverage. Well, guess what? Silver, gold, and platinum plans are minimum value coverage as well. They just happen to have lower deductibles. So uh, again, it's minimum value coverage that avoids both the A and the B penalty, but minimum essential coverage only avoids the A penalty. This is a side-by-side um, -side spreadsheet of the proposal for this employer from Starmark. They were offering, uh, this is minimum essential coverage. They offered three different types of MEC plans. Uh, the basic MEC plan, as I showed you earlier, cost $74.11. Uh, the employer could also offer uh, a little bit uh, better plan that offered uh, covered some uh, limited inpatient and prescription drug benefits. And then uh, this third plan over here actually covered uh, emergency rooms and things like that. So what some employers would do is they would pay for the full cost of this plan here, the green one, but then allow the employees to upgrade to uh, uh, the yellow or the blue plan and they pay that the cost difference as long as their uh, contribution didn't exceed, um, uh, well, in this case, their contribution was zero for the basic coverage, so they were in, in compliance. And then um, let's talk about minimum value coverage. Again, there's two paths to, to putting in an MB, MVC plan. It could be fully insured. It could be level funded, like uh, we just showed with Starmark. Uh, typically, Starmark Trustmark offers both MEC and minimum value coverage. Uh, they allow for a buy-up. Uh, final rates are based on a, a health risk assessment process for those who enroll in the minimum value coverage and they offer a choice of bronze, silver, and, and, and gold plans. Um, and all of their plans, they sell refund surplus claim dollars at year's end. Uh, we put a lot of business with California Choice, although you know they're just one of many carriers that offer, off, obviously, minimum value coverage. Um, uh, you know, PPO, EPO, HMO plans, uh, Kaiser, Anthem, Sutter, Western Health, et cetera. And uh, again, they would they would offer uh, maybe a bronze plan as the minimum uh, basic coverage, and then allow employees to upgrade to silver or gold as they needed. But those those would be compliant plans. And we we wrote a lot more of, of those plans than we did MEC plans in the final analysis. Uh, again, this is what minimum value coverage looked like through Starmark. Uh, remember, I quoted that rate of two hundred seventy four dollars and. 93 cents earlier, that was that cost. If the employees wanted to upgrade to a, a silver or a gold plans, they had those options there. And then uh, you, you've all seen what, uh, like in this case, the California Choice Private Exchange, what the uh, plans they were offering, uh, we would show uh, the average employee rate of uh, $340.65. Obviously the rates themselves are, are both um, individual rates, uh, uh, what we call member level rating. So um, this was just providing the employer with uh, what an average cost looks like. So they would they would pick out, say, for example, the Kaiser bronze plan as the core plan. And then if somebody wanted to upgrade to a better plan, they would uh, pay the price difference. Um, uh, 
so some other considerations, and we're and we're close to being done here. And I know I know uh, we've gone on for a while. Um, typically, it takes 30 to 45 days to implement and install a qualified plan. This does not happen overnight. There's a lot of stuff you have to do, a lot of paperwork you have to provide. You've got to get employees uh, with enrollment and and waiver forms and all that stuff. We can and we do prepare employee enrollment kits and packets, and we do prepare both English and Spanish sets of those. Those packets typically have an employer cover letter, which states the fact that they're trying to comply with the law, blah, blah, blah. The rate contribution chart that the employees will be looking at to see what their costs are, the summary of the benefits, an election form, which is either acts as a waiver or an enrollment form, both, both forms. Uh, the actual enrollment form for coverage. Uh, we do know that in MEC plans, they can use a census enrollment so they don't have to actually enroll for that coverage. But in minimum value coverage, they're gonna have to fill out an enrollment form. And then we provide uh, optional information like eligibility information on Medi-Cal, Covered California Healthy Kids. Uh, some employers ask us to offer dental, vision, prescription drug, and life optional benefits as well, which we, which we try to do. So the employer has to make some key decisions up front before we can do all this. They have to decide, are they gonna have employee classes? What employer contributions they, they want to make by class? What waiting periods they wanna have by class? Do they wanna extend coverage uh, to spouses and children? They have to, to children. And what specific benefit levels do they wanna offer? A MEC plan, a MEC MVP buy-up, uh, MBC only, uh, and what other buy-up options uh, can they can they have? So these are these are decisions they have to make. Uh, this takes some time to do it. it. Takes some time to get the enrollment kits done. Then we've got to get those out, you know, in the field and and distributed. Many employers they don't have a real sophisticated HR department, so they rely heavily on uh, their their advisor to help them with that. And we we uh, help with the advisor on those things. We don't do it for free, but we, we do it because uh, it's the right thing to do. Um, with regard to ACA administration compliance, I, I won't take a lot of time on this, but, but they, they, they need to not only come into compliance initially, but they need to remain in compliance. And so, the, you know, these are some tasks that they have to do. They've gotta be able to track and monitor work hours They've got to be able to process enrollment and waiver forms as employees come and go. They have to uh, document any offers that they make and document offers of enrollment and, and waivers. And of course, they have to file the annual reports to the uh, IRS, the 1095 and 1094C um, and, and B uh, reports. Um, so in my opinion, the first vendor they should probably look to would be their existing payroll or payroll system vendor. Um, many of them now offer an HR module in their system, or they provide uh, a, an HR assistance uh, in their service package that uh, can handle the above issues. Uh, it's not for free. I haven't seen one uh, HR vendor that does any of this for free, but um, it makes sense to do it because if they're already working with a payroll company and the payroll company will do this for a, a reasonable cost, it makes a lot of sense. Um, there are payroll systems that will do basic payroll and then you can buy an add-on module to do what we call HR administration for ACA stuff. And again, that costs money. 
Um, the second firm I would look at would be a specialty compliance firm uh, that, you know, like um, say a third party administrator um, who can do all of this work for you as well. They're going to obviously require payroll runs on a regular basis in order to track and monitor the hours and um, also the eligibility and the waiting periods. And, and then they can file the year end reports in you know, the form 1094 and 1095, as well as the annual 5500 if they're a large employer of over 100. Uh, some firms can, uh, will call on an outside CPA or accounting firm. Uh, I will tell you that there are a lot of firms out there that uh, you know, could do it, but they have to be certified in ACA and compliance requirements, including ERISA, HIPAA, and COBRA. Most uh, CPA uh, firms aren't. And so that's why these specialty compliance firms have uh, come to, to pass. And then finally, the employer could do this internally. They could, they could assign an internal HR or accounting staff to do this. And again, those staff have to be trained and familiar with the ACA requirements uh, related to the employer mandate compliance, as well as ERISA, HIPAA, and COBRA. Uh, many advisors are called on by their uh, clients to train their internal uh, HR and accounting people on how to do this. And, and we have been involved with that uh, from time to time. Again, we don't do it for free, but, but uh, if the employer wants that liability to do it internally, they can certainly do that. Again, I want to report to them uh, in, in our proposal, this is not legal advice. We're not a CPA. You, go, you should go to a, an attorney or your, your CPA for that type of advice. We are acting only as an employee benefit advisor, and, that, and that's it. Um, typically, at the end of the uh, re report and proposal, we attach the following exhibits. The full uh, ACA analysis report that you saw earlier with all the colors and stuff, that's, that's in there. Uh, the uh, proposal for MEC coverage from a, uh, a particular carrier. The proposals for minimum uh, value coverage, again, from one or more carriers. In this case, uh, uh, Trustmark and CalChoice. And then finally, many employers want us to put in optional dental vision life coverage, in this case, from Nippon Life, who was a carrier that, that offered that. So those would be the attachments and exhibits. Wow, I know I've gone way over an hour and I apologize for that. Um, so, um, and there's still quite a few of you still on, I, I appreciate that. So um, that's pretty much in a nutshell what, uh, what we're doing and how it, how it works. Um, Natalie, I'm gonna turn the time back over to you, see if there are any questions. Um, absolutely. Um, we have a few questions, not very many, um, but also if you want a copy of the slides, please feel free to request that in the question box. Uh, is this only for large groups? It's for groups that have... For groups that have... Sorry, I got an echo there. It's for groups that have 50 or more um, uh, full-time uh, uh, employees. So if they're right at the edge, if, they, if they're not sure if they have 50 or more, they should have an ACA analysis done, and then we will determine whether or not they're, they're over that limit. But yes, the compliance that we've talked about today applies to employer groups with 50 or more full-time or full-time equivalents. Next question. Next question. Great. Um, or will it go into small groups as well? Yeah, because yeah, here because in California, here in California the, the, well, sorry, sorry, the, 
the definition the definition of a of a small employer is two to a hundred. So you will have an overlap between fifty and and a hundred uh, of employers who are in the small group market for products, but yet they're considered uh, applicable large employers for compliance. So it does involve the small group market. If they have less than fifty, and we can show that under the report that they have uh, a count of less than fifty, then they they won't have to comply. Next question. Next, next question. Next question is Does the max hourly deduction apply to dependents? No, it does not. No, it does not. Okay. And I believe that's all the questions for today. Um, so for everyone um, available, thank you so much. I know we have went over our time a little bit today, um, but as you can see, the, the, the presentation was definitely necessary and needed. Um, we will have a link of the webinar posted on the website within 24 hours, um, as well as copy of the request of the slides will be completed within the next 24 to 48 hours. Thank you so much, everyone. And thank you to you, Dave Fear, for giving us this amazing presentation. I want everyone to have an amazing Thursday and, of course, an amazing rest of the weekend. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.